hello. Uh, I'm just gonna go up this street and then flip a Yui. Okay. Hi everybody. Welcome to episode nine of Haunt and Cold. We are your hosts. I'm Katie. April. It was probably Christmas yesterday, right? This comes out day after yeah. Christmas. Merry Christmas yesterday. Merry Christmas yesterday. I hope Santa brought you everything that you needed. Everything you ever dreamed of. Everything. Oh, oh. shit. Sorry. <laughs> I am sorry. You're, you're, uh... My steering wheel works just like the other ones. <laughs> ah. I never know how to use those either. It's different in every car. It is. You hear that? That's my Dr. Pepper. <laughs> hear this? That's my Red Bull. This is now an ASMR podcast. <laughs> we only open drinks. You to listen to our mistakes and, and almost crash into a curb. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't this just so relaxing? <laughs> this is just the most zen drive I've ever been on. Oh man. It only took us 45 minutes to figure out the audio. <laughs> so it's fine. But man, does it sound great. If it doesn't, we might cry. <laughs> Should we go back and listen? Sure. Okay, let's okay. Go. okay pause. pause. Here's your commercial break. Deep boop. Okay, well, there's no telling if it's good or not. Alright, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I guess you guys will see if we end up re-recording. Yeah, <laughs> well, we're at episode 9. It's kind of weird. It is weird. It's kind of weird thinking about the stories I've already done, and I'm like, how was it? <laughs> I don't remember. Like, should I redo it? <laughs> right. My next story is me retelling this story because I didn't do good the last time. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm okay. Um, Luke and Aspen, my two older children, they've been on the naughty list a lot. And we're really hoping that um, they pulled through. Yeah, I really hope that they pulled through and that Santa put them on the nice list so they didn't get lumps of coal in their stocking. Levi's headed that way too. Yeah, I talked to him about that on the ride to your house. <laughs> I'm like, so are you guys on the nice list? And Axel's like, no, Levi's on the naughty list. <laughs> and Levi's like, no. <laughs> How are you? You guys, I did it. What'd you do? I did my booth. You did your booth. It happened. It happened. Everyone was really nice. I got a lot of compliments on my booth, which I did not expect. I really expected to fail, to be honest. Like most things I do, I expect to fail and embarrass myself, but everyone was so nice. Well, in your booth, like, it looked so professional. Ugh. And I think that if the crowd would have been better, you would have done better. Well, I, you know? I now know that a lot of, so I had some DIY kits, and I now know that a lot of people wanted them finished and not DIY. Oh, really? So, I think if I ever do another one, I'll have both options, but my cutting boards didn't do as good as I thought they would. But no, it went, it went good in the way where I learned a lot, and like, I now know what I would do differently, so that's good. Alright. Yeah, nailed it. And thanks to all of our listeners, holy cow. It's so fun watching our audience grow. It really is kind of cool to see who's listening, where they're from, yeah, the different areas of Utah. I think most of our listeners are in Utah, uh-huh. probably mostly our family. <laughs> but like, we do see some people in different cities, like Ephraim and Holden, Vernal, like yeah, like places that I know. Okay. I know nobody, so it's like, okay. They're organic. 
Well, not even just Utah, but we're, we're seeing some listeners in you know, surrounding states. So that's really exciting. So we see you all. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoy. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't already hate Utah, maybe we're helping you. <laughs> maybe we're helping you spread the hot goss. <laughs> yeah. If you want to visit Utah, just don't run into serial killers or ghosts, I guess. We'll tell you where not to go. Yes, exactly. Or where to go if oh, you like ghosts. Right. Depends on what your agenda is. If you like serial killers, you need to get that checked. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we don't like them. We just want to hear their stories. They're just fascinating. I just don't understand why they do the things that they do. Yeah. You know, anyways. Yeah, it's like the people that we are allowed to talk shit on. Exactly. Yeah. The people we're allowed to hate and tell everyone about. We're all on the same page. We yeah. all hate them. Let's just talk about it. Let's just Let's tell... I'm telling you why you should hate them, and... <laughs> You're pleading your case. I'm <laughs> pleading the case of why these people should be hated. Or right. not hated if they didn't do anything. Exactly. So, we'll see. We're doing the good work. <laughs> We're doing... In the good old... What is this? No, I mean, like, what did they call this? The paradise? Not oh, paradise, but... Promised land. The promised land. Like Lion King? No, that's a pride land. <laughs> Okay. Alright. You ready to hear my story? Yeah. Okay. I'm so excited. <laughs> so, references. Wikipedia. Murderpedia. Murderpedia. How did you know? You say it every time. That's because it's all the only place I read. <laughs> Sometimes I use the newspapers, but this is set back in before there were the Salt Lake Tribune and all that stuff. On January 10th, 1914, John G. Morrison and his 1914? I'm sorry, what? 1914. Wow. I'm going way back. Hold on to your britches. On January 10th, 1914, John G. Morrison and his sons Merlin and Arlene were working in their Salt Lake City convenience store. Arlene was in his late teens and was sweeping. Mr. Morrison was pulling a sack of potatoes across the floor, and 13-year-old Merlin was walking toward the entrance of the store when two armed intruders, masked with red bandanas and soft felt hats, entered the store. One was tall and one was short, and they shouted, We've got you now. The men advanced toward Mr. Morrison, and a shot was fired. Mr. Morrison was behind the counter with his back turned toward Merlin. One of the men reached over the counter and fired another shot. Mr. Morrison fell behind the counter. Merlin went to his father, who was still alive but unable to speak. Merlin then saw his brother lying dead on his side with his right hand outstretched. Near Arling's hand was a pistol, which Merlin saw his dad load and put in the icebox earlier that evening. The boy ran to the telephone and called the police. Oh no. I don't know what it is about these stores that get robbed, but... Seriously. Stresses me out to be anywhere. Yeah. So at this point, Arlene, the older brother, is dead. The dad was shot and unable to speak, and Merlin was unharmed. Hmm. Fifteen minutes later, the first policeman arrived, uh, where they took Mr. Morrison to the police station hospital, which I didn't know they had a hospital at the police station. Oh. But you know what, though? That would make sense, because like, if someone's arrested but also need medical attention... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so sad. So, but I thought it was interesting that he had put a gun in a place that they could easily reach, and it just so happened that they were robbed that night. So it kind of seems like it was personal. Said, we've got you now. 
Oh, yeah. So they must have been targeting him. And mm-hmm. I think that dad knew something was coming. Oh. That's why he put the... I see what you're saying. The gun yeah. in the icebox when that wasn't normal. It's yeah. like, why would you... Yeah, that's not just a coincidence. Right. You're right. So the police and the neighbors did a thorough search of the area where they apprehended four suspects. Which I think is interesting that the neighbors were like, yeah, we'll help you find the bad <laughs> They're right. Like, <laughs> well, and I wonder, too, if, like, back then, like, the police were a little more open about what was going on. Yeah. In it was the a hood. little less hush-hush hus- back then, I'm sure. Yeah. It was right. like, everyone knew everything always. Exactly. And everyone's just like, I'll help you arrest this guy. I've got my man on boots on. So, the police thought maybe it was a crime of revenge since Mr. Morrison was previously a police officer and he had many enemies. Oh. Where they said, we've got you now. I don't know, for some reason it makes me think of like a, what is it called? Like where they, he was a bad cop. Oh. And like maybe he was working with the wrong dude. Like he was a crooked cop? Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, you just don't know. Well, if if they said, we got you now, that makes me think that they tried before. So I think that they targeted him, obviously, but I don't know why. Yeah. Okay. Twelve men total were arrested in the case, but a man by the name of Joseph Hillstrom was arrested and charged with the murders. Twelve people? Huh. But only one was arrested and charged where there were two people there. I see. 11.30 p.m. that night, Hillstrom, uh, the one that was arrested and charged, Yeah. this is his story, what was going on. Okay. That night, he visited the home of Dr. Frank M. McHugh on the corner of 14th South and State Street in Salt Lake City. Upon reaching the home, Hill said, Doctor, I've been shot. I got in a stew with a friend of mine who thought I insulted his wife. When he told me I insulted his wife, I knocked him down, but he got up and pulled a gun and shot me. I have walked away up here, so I guess it ain't serious because this fellow that shot me didn't really know what he was doing. I want Mm. to have nothing said about it. If there's a chance to get over it, it will be okay with my friend. After the arrival of Dr. Bird, a friend of the McHugh doctor, Dr. McHugh, he... As he's examining Hill's bullet wound, Mm -hmm. the doctor notices that Hill has a gun in his shoulder holster. Joe claimed to have been unarmed at the time he was shot. Oh, then it's like, then where did this gun come from? Right. So, a little bit about Joe. Joe Hill was born October 7th, 1879. He was born with the name of Joel Emmanuel Hagland. Oh, hey. Yeah. So, our dad's mom's maiden name. Yeah. Our dad's mom's maiden name, who just passed Mm-hmm. Her main name was Havland, ah. and they were from Sweden. I think we might be related to this guy. Oh, but okay. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the family tree. That Interesting. Went we'll have to go back and do a deep dive on that and see. Yeah, his. we'll let you know if we're, we're related. Yeah. So he was a Swedish American labor activist, a songwriter, and a member of the Industrial Workers of the World (IWW), which I guess is commonly known as the Wobblies. Weird name. Alright, we'll go with it. Alright. In October 1902, when he was nearly 23 years old, Joe and his brother Paul Hagland immigrated to the United States. After he got to America, he worked many jobs from New York to San Francisco. Uh, Joe was an immigrant worker, so he frequently faced unemployment and underemployment, so he was barely getting by. Okay. He became a popular songwriter and cartoonist for the Union, which explained the harsh and combative life of industrial workers, and it called for workers to organize their efforts to improve working conditions. 
interesting. Yeah, so he was like an activist and he was like trying to make work life for immigrants. Like, this needs to be better. We need to live better. You know, we're people too. We need to survive all this stuff, right? Nice. Way to go. Yeah. So apparently, Joe had appeared on the doorstep, the local doctor. Right. That whole thing went down. The doctor reported to police that he had a pistol on him, but the pistol was never found. They couldn't find it on him in his home, on his path where he was. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. When they did search his home, they did find a red bandana similar to the ones on the burglar guys. They wore red bandanas across their face and felt hats, right? So they found a red bandana, which everyone could have a red bandana. What's, you know, whatever. So Joe denied he was involved in the robbery or killing anyone. He said when he was shot, his hands were over his head and the bullet hole in his coat, which is four inches below the exit wound in his back, seemed to support his claim. So he had his arms up when he got shot. Okay. And the bullet hole that was in his jacket Mm -hmm. would have lined up with that. Okay. So if he had his arms down like he was about to shoot somebody, the bullet hole in his jacket would have been light like it would have been in a different spot that makes sense so that supported that claim but even still he got charged with it joseph didn't testify testify at his trial but his lawyers pointed out that four other people were treated that night with bullet wounds in salt lake city well, what the hell look yeah. into them yeah so joe had no motive because he didn't even know mr morrison he had no connection at all that they could find yeah um, no, his lawyer was like why would this guy who's barely getting by, nothing was robbed from the store. Yeah. Oh. Nothing was taken from the store. Okay. They were just killed. They were murdered. So the guys that were doing this had personal intentions. Yes. And if he was just barely getting by, he would have taken something. He would have taken money. He would have taken anything. Something, yeah. But... So that doesn't add up to me at all. No. I will say. Um, The prosecution had a dozen eyewitnesses who said the killer resembled Joe Hill, including 13-year-old Merlin Morrison, the youngest son that survived. Okay. Who originally, when he first saw Joe, he said, that's not him at all. But then later identified him as the murderer. What? Yeah. Well, they're finding now um, that eyewitness accounts are always as helpful as they could be because, like, they did a study. I can't remember when it was. It was a few years ago because I was doing a paper in school. Mm -hmm. But they did a study where they had a situation happen. And then they went and interviewed all the people that were there to witness it. And Mm -hmm. they all had some things right but other characteristics wrong. The height, the color of their hair. Some of them got it right, but others got it wrong. So it's not always concrete proof when there's an eyewitness. It does help with details on trying to find the right person, Mm -hmm. but you can't use that as concrete evidence. And a lot of the time, eyewitness accounts sometimes get thrown out because they're not as solid as they once were. It's not proof because details in your mind, your mind can fill in the blanks. Yeah. So your mind can see like, okay, I see a tall guy with dark hair. Yeah. Um, and the, but if they say, well, what was the color of his eyes? And you're like, uh, blue. But your mind kind of like tries to fill in the blanks. And sometimes it's of people you've recognized before, like someone oh, that you yeah. saw in the store yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's your mind literally just trying to fill in the blanks. It's just not concrete proof. It does help in investigations, but I don't think it can be the only piece of evidence in a trial anymore. 
You need way more than that nowadays. Yeah. Well, don't they say too that like the more you tell a story, the more it changes? Yeah. I yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Can you please let me over, please. We are stuck in traffic, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I just need to get off the freeway now, or off of this freeway, onto a different freeway. Ba ba ba. The jury only took a few hours before finding Joe guilty of the murder. What? Yeah. Based on what though? Based on eyewitness accounts. Oh. And circumstantial evidence that he also <clears throat> happened to have a bandana. <laughs> like, wow, very unlucky for him. Yeah. An appeal to the Utah Supreme Court was unsuccessful. Orrin Hilton, who was his lawyer for the appeal. Oh. Who's honking? Uh, I don't know. Not me. <laughs> Why is everybody honking? I don't know. I think people are just getting mad at other people and but just for what? Around. There's not much we can do here. Yeah, we're. I never understood why people honk in bumper to bumper traffic. It's like, do you realize the situation five miles ahead? <laughs> right. Everyone can't go. Yeah. So. Like, nobody is getting anywhere fast. Right. <sighs> anyway. Okay, sorry, let's save my brain. Um, That's right. We got time. Warren Hilton, yeah. the lawyer he had for the appeal, mm -hmm. said, quote, The main thing the state had on Hill was that he was a wobbly. So he was a part of that IWW the activist indus industrial workers something. Yeah. Industrial workers of the world. Okay, yeah, yeah. Immigrant. Well why would that why would that hurt like why would that be a bad thing though? Because he's an activist, he's causing problems, he's trying to form unions and that was not okay at the time. <sighs> Everyone frowned upon unions unless you were a part of the worker workforce, you mm. know. Or like the labor workforce. I see. The main thing the state had on Hill was that he was a wobbly and therefore sure to be guilty. Hill tried to keep the IWW out of the trial, but the press fastened it upon him, which we've seen the press can twist and turn things oh, yeah. to their agenda. For sure. Anything. We've seen it, like the information can be twisted, facts are twisted into mm -hmm. whatever they want it to be. It's really upsetting. It is. Honestly, like journalism needs to be around, but the honest journalism. Yeah. Like this is what happened and let people make their opinions. Mm -hmm. They have opinion pieces. But the pieces that the media releases about certain facts of whatever it is they're doing, they leave out certain pieces on purpose. Mm -hmm. They don't tell us the full story because, you know, I mean, they want to mm -hmm. be able to control the narrative even though it's not their place to. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, the media sucks, but we need it. We just wish it was more honest journalism than, it's like, tell us what happened, let everyone have their own opinion. Yep. You know? Like, you don't need to make up my mind for me. Right, exactly. In an article for the socialist newspaper, Appeal to Reason was the name of the newspaper. Okay. Hill wrote, so Joe Hill wrote this. He said, mm -hmm. quote, Owing to the prominence of Mr. Morrison, there had to be a scapegoat, and the undersigned being, as they thought, a friendless tramp, a Swede, and worst of all, an IWW, had no right to live anyway, and, <sighs> and was therefore duly selected to be the scapegoat. That is so sad. Yeah. It's like, let people live their lives. Don't think that they're guilty just because you disapprove of what they're doing with their life. Right. They found an easy target. Yeah. Like he was an immigrant. Like, he happened to be shot that day. He happened to have a bandana. Joe's case turned into a major media event. President Woodrow Wilson 
Woodrow Wilson, Wilson. <laughs> um, Helen Keller, the Swedish ambassador, and the Swedish citizens all got involved in a, in a bid for leniency for Joe. Oh. Which is weird that the president was like, hey, be lenient on him, and mm-hmm. they didn't do it. Hmm. They were like, no, he's guilty. Crazy. I've heard that the president really doesn't have a whole lot of power as far as, like, decisions like that go. Right. Like, they can suggest, but that's about it. I mean, I think they can do pardons, but I'm sure there's a whole lot of paperwork that comes into that. Yeah, that's true. And who knows what it was like back then. Yeah. So. And you know what? Crime, I'm sure, was... Like, the whole process had to have been completely different because there was no way to prove anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, nobody was taking pictures. Right. I mean, they were, but not like, I don't know, not like now. Right. Not like even 20 years ago. But I think it's because this guy was, like, a popular songwriter. He was a popular, like, cartoonist for the union. He was he was well-known. Yeah. People were like, hold on a second. Mm-hmm. It generated international union attention, and critics said that the trial and conviction were unfair, obviously. Yeah. Utah Phillips, which I don't know who that is, but more recently considered Joe to be a political prisoner who was executed for his political agitation through his songwriting. He was executed? Yeah. Oh. Hilda Erickson's letter. So Hilda Erickson was the woman that he was apparently being shot over. Oh. So he was getting in a fight with his friend. Yeah. Over a woman. Because he's like, you insulted my woman. I'm going to shoot you. Where's his friend? I don't know. And why is his friend not saying, yeah, I shot him? Well, Hilda (laughs) Erickson wrote a letter to the appeal thing Mm -hmm. and said that Hill had told her that he had been shot by her former fiancé. Oh. It was a jealousy thing. Okay. So Joe was executed by firing squad on November 19th, 1915 at Utah Sugar House Prison. When Deputy Shetler, who led the firing squad, called out ready aim, and Hill apparently said, fire, go on and fire, and that was the last thing he said. Whoa. I think he was freaking pissed. So just prior to his execution, Hill had written a, written to his friend Bill Haywood, an IWW leader, saying, goodbye, Bill, I die like a true blue rebel. Don't waste any time in mourning. Organize. Could you arrange to have my body hauled to the state line to be buried? I don't want to be found dead in Utah. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, he hated us. <laughs> For good reason. I mean, there's a lot of people that would say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be found dead in this place. His last will, which was eventually set to music by Ethel Rehm, requested a cremation, and it said, My will is easy to decide, for there is nothing to divide. My kin don't need to fuss and moan. Moss does not cling to Rolling Stone. My body, oh, if I could choose, I would to ashes it reduce, and let the merry breezes blow. My dust to where some flowers grow, perhaps some fading flower then would come to life and bloom again. This is my last and final will. Good luck to all of you, Joe Hill. That is so sad. I'm sorry. I know. I mean, I guess we don't really know if he did it or not, but if... I'm believing that he did not do it. In my personal opinion, which doesn't matter to anybody, <laughs> but, but I don't think he did it. I think it was circumstantial yeah. and they pinned him because it was an easy pin. Yeah. And that is so, like that, oh my gosh, that poem slash yeah. song, like that is so sad. Yeah. He was Could, like, maybe just 
put me in the wind and maybe I can help grow some flowers. Yeah. Because, you, know? you know, I don't know. I feel like a killer, a true, true killer would not have those kinds of words. No. I don't think so. Mm-mm. So that's just my personal opinion and take on that. Yeah. That's that on that. So in 1988, like, what, 60 years later? Uh-huh. I can't math. Whatever. It was discovered that an envelope seized by the United States Postal Department in 1917, it was seized because of its sub potential. The envelope included a photo of Joe Hill with a caption, quote, Joe Hill murdered by capitalist class, November 19th, 1915, as well as its contents, which were his ashes. Oh. Um, it was deposited into the National Archives. A story appeared in the Utah Auto Workers Magazine, Solidarity, and a small blip in the New Yorker Magazine. One of the members of the IWW in Chicago found these articles about this thing in the National Archives. Uh-huh. They claimed it to be theirs. They're like, hey, that's ours. We have rights to it. It's his ashes and a photo of him because that's what he wanted. Like, he wanted it to go across the world. Oh, yeah. And to IWW to have them take his ashes and just spread it across the world. That's kind of a cool way to, to do it. Yeah. Like, mail out your ashes. I, mean, I guess you couldn't do it, but, like, <laughs> have someone mail out your ashes to different parts of the world. Have it spread. Like. Yeah, so you're everywhere. Yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. actually really cool. Um, after some negotiation, Hill's ashes were turned over to the IWW in 1988. Right. A newspaper called In These Times ran a story of the ashes and invited readers to suggest what should be done with them. Suggestions varied from enshrining them in Washington, D.C. Another suggestion um, was for Abby Hoffman, which is a founder of the Flower Power Movement, to, uh, I don't like this, to have his ashes consumed by the Joe Hills of the time, which was in the 80s. So the activists in the 80s. Oh, no. Yeah, he didn't. He did not want that. He didn't want to be your poop. Okay, right? Billy Bragg, a songwriter and activist at the time, did actually swallow a little bit of the ashes with some Union beer to wash it down. Ah, Isn't that disgusting. disgusting. I think that's so disrespectful. Yeah, I don't like that. Uh, um, but majority uh, of the ashes were uh, cast uh, into the wind in the U.S., Canada, Sweden, Australia, and Nicaragua. Oh, Sweden. Good. Yeah, anywhere but Utah, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, he did. He hated this place. On the night of November 18th, 1990, a Southeast Michigan IWW general membership branch hosted a gathering of Wobblies in a remote wooded area at which a a dinner followed by a bonfire featured a reading of Hill's Last Will that we just read. Okay. So they kind of are doing like a monument. Like a sigil. Yeah. And then his ashes were released into the flames and carried up above the trees. The next day... One wobbly collected a bowl full of ashes from the smoldering fire pit, and at that event, several IWW members consumed a portion of Hill's ashes before the rest was consigned to the fire. Oh my gosh. I just have to tell you, if you ever eat anyone's ashes intentionally, like, that's so disrespectful, please don't do it. That is, I think, one of the worst things you can do with someone's ashes. Especially if they didn't ask for that, you yeah. know? Hey, we can eat my ashes. Put it in your cereal. Every morning for 50 years, please. Oh my goodness. Yeah. To commemorate the 50th anniversary of the execution of Joe Hill, Philip S. Foner published a book called The Case of Joe Hill about the trial and subsequent events, which concludes that the case was a miscarriage of justice, as we know. Yeah. 
Uh, and that poor guy, because he was probably no. without his family too, right? Cause yeah, he was an immigrant. But he was he immigrated over with his brother. But I'm sure with life they yeah. separated over time. Yeah. If you guys are interested, Joe Hill has some like folk old folk songs that oh. are recorded. Like they're good. Okay. His songs are called One Rebel Girl, Two The Preacher and the Slave, which coined the phrase Pie in the Sky. I don't know if oh, really? I've heard anyone say that. Uh-uh. Um, so Pie in the Sky is from the song The Preacher and the Slave. Okay. Um, another song, There is Power in a Union. Another song, Casey Jones, The Union Scab. <laughs> I bet that was an actual person, and he was like, I just hate you. Um, and then the last one, The Tramp. And I think there are some others, but these are the most popular ones. Okay. Uh, many songs have been written about Joe. Joe Hill by Phil Oaks. Uh, Joseph Hillstrom, 1879 to 1915 by Joseph Joplin, or sorry, Josh Joplin. Um, And I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill Last Night by Alfred Hayes, written in 1930. Hill's quote, don't waste any time mourning, organize, often shortened to don't mourn, organize, has become a widely used slogan of the political left, especially after a defeat or death. Oh, yeah. That's okay. the story of Joe Hill. Wow. Do you want to hear one of his songs? Yeah. I don't have any that are sung by him. I don't... I think he was just the writer. Oh, okay. The Preacher and the Slave is his most popular one. So one second. with that case it's not so much about um i mean the murder the murder yeah i mean like sadly i feel like it went unsolved i would say it's unsolved yeah because they looked in the wrong places i agree anyway that's my story good story it's kind of a short one and kind of like a i don't know like it just sucks that he was criminalized criminalized by being an activist and saying that he, him and his like team of workers and immigrants, everyone deserves good working conditions and yeah to be treated fairly. And he got freaking executed for something he didn't do. Wow. And it just sucks. Doesn't that just make you a little paranoid? It's like, I'm not going to be involved in anything <laughs> because I don't want the wrong people to I come after me. I don't want to be in any of the bad places. <laughs> and here we are in downtown Salt Lake. I know, right? Yeah, it does. It's scary because you could be 
just circumstantial in like a horrible situation. Just the wrong place, wrong time. And but the difference is we have better technology. True. Um, we don't go solely off of eyewitnesses. True. Like our police force, I think, has better. Be- I should say better, not the best, but they have better tactics in solving a crime. Yeah. So, and it, they obviously they can always improve. We've seen cases where they didn't do anything or didn't do the right things. Yeah. But I, I don't think that would have happened today. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. In that same situation, because we have DNA and we have, because they, I guess they had, um, like in the trial, they had, they even like quoted people saying like, see, they have the same like hair color, but they have different differences. Like, <laughs> like the eyewitnesses even said like they didn't look exactly like the person that they saw. Like, come on. They had all the reason to keep looking, and they just didn't. Right. And it's unfair, and they ruined this guy's life, who, who knows what he would have done, but he had an impact on the world. Right. And one of the things said that Joe didn't testify at his own trial, because he's like, I realize if I die, then my impact on the world and what, like, my goals are will probably happen faster if I die than if I were to live on trying to change them. Like, huh. Interesting. Yeah. So that's why he's like, I'm not testifying. Whatever is going to happen to me will happen to me, and the more I, my hopes and dreams will be heard Mm -hmm. after I'm gone. But I I do wonder, though, like, if he did testify, would that have helped him? I don't think so. I mean, they hardly had any evidence towards this guy. I mean, yeah, it would just be taking his word over the victim. Exactly. You know, or whoever. The witnesses, I should say. Right. It's just a shitty thing. I'm really sad about it. Yeah. Like, what a bummer. Yeah. And you... I don't know. I just... Oh, we're almost to where we're going. Sweet. Yeah. I really, really hate driving in downtown Salt Lake. And here we are. Hey, there's Charlie Square. Hey. There it is. Yep. Never been there. (laughs) Me either. It's cute, though. I love all the lights downtown. That's the thing. That's the only thing I like about downtown. Yeah. The lights... And that's it. Oh boy. Yeah, so if you're not from Utah, just know that Salt Lake City is a nightmare. A nightmare. It's it's <laughs> you don't you don't you don't have to drive through it to experience Salt Lake City. Just drive around it and look at the pop buildings from afar. Yeah. Honestly, I'm sure people who actually live in Salt Lake have a different opinion because I know there are a lot of people who kinda like the city scene where they walk the streets or whatever. I'm too chicken. And take the train and Yeah. But honestly, like there's so much of Utah that's so much better than Salt Lake City. <laughs> right. Park City, for example. All the canyons. Mm-hmm. All of them. We should make Park City our capital. Yeah. That would represent Utah a little better. Or Moab. Yeah. With the skiing. Yeah. And the, I don't know, rich people. I mean, Salt Lake City has a lot of history, I'll give it that, but like, just being here sucks. The little (laughs) houses are cute, kind of. Oh, wait till you see where we're going, though, because the building that we're going to is actually a gothic Victorian style. No, that's cool. Oh, I like that house. But I'm excited to see this house. It's this one right here. It is covered in Christmas lights. Oh my gosh. We gotta figure out where to park though. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's this mansion right here on the corner. I mean, guest parking. I mean, we're not invited guests. <laughs> North Pole, this way. The other side. That's all I see on that side. The other side of what? Um, oh, the other side, sorry. It's a non-profit organization. Uh, it's a halfway house, actually. Oh. Okay. So do you know where we are? Um, no. 
We're in Salt Lake. So, we are at the Francis Armstrong Mansion in downtown Salt Lake. The address is 667 East, 100 South, Salt Lake City, Utah. And I want to note that that is almost 666. Almost. Almost. But I'm like, I bet it was 666, and they're they like, changed it to 7. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's close. I mean, maybe not, but I was just like, that's just one number off. Alright, so this building, or this mansion, was built in 1893, and by the way, I really try to put my notes in order, but it's, it was tricky this time, so if you get confused, just let me know and I can try to explain. Okay. Alright, so the house was built in 1893. It was the first home in Salt Lake City to have plumbing and running water. The first one? The first one. Interesting. They must and, have been looted. Yeah, they were. Okay. And um, actually, Francis Armstrong was the owner of a an electrical company and a something else company where like they kind of were the ones to like f- like figure it out. Oh. So they they put it in his home first. So yeah. That's risky. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because it, it like went wrong. <laughs> like it backs up and there's <laughs> shit all over your bathroom. Yeah. yeah. In the house, like all around the house, there's very intricate, extravagant woodwork, like on the ceiling, on the walls, yeah, on the banisters, everything, like it's very intricate. And I even have a picture, which we're going to share on our Instagram page, because you know, every episode we always have like a slideshow of different pictures. I found a family photo of the Armstrong family, Mm -hmm. and um, Francis wasn't in it, because I think he was dead at the time, or somewhere else, but it was the mom, and then all the kids. Okay. And they're in the house, and you can see, like, behind them, like, the woodwork. And I'm telling you, like, whoever did it was using the tiniest little tools. Like, it is so intricate. That's cool. And Isabel, she's the mom, Isabel Armstrong, she's sitting in this chair. The back of the chair is also intricate woodwork. And I'm like, wow, geez. But that's the thing I like about older things is they put so much time and effort into every piece Mm -hmm. that they did. There was a skill that I don't think is there anymore. Yeah, like, like an art to it. Yeah, I don't think it's there anymore. All of yeah. our freaking furniture's from F and Ikea, mm-hmm. and it's like lines of boxes. And yeah, it's just not yeah. the same. When, so when you walk into the mansion, there's a giant grand staircase that leads to the second floor. And I guess on that banister is like some really intricate woodwork too. Oh, so. that's cool really cool. Francis Armstrong, he once said, home is my heaven on earth. Heaven will be home and family or it won't be heaven. Oh, I agree. Yeah, so he's very much a family man and like Mm -hmm. everything he did for his family, like you can tell it was genuine. He's just a good dude. Yeah, just a good guy. As far as I could tell. Uh, Both Francis Armstrong and Isabel, they both were born in England and eventually made their way to the Utah Territory around 1860 and 1861. Francis's first job when he arrived at the Utah Territory he was a carpenter and eventually he worked with Isabel's father at the mill. Francis and Isabel, their paths actually didn't cross until Francis lodged with Isabel's family because he was a young lone traveler and her family, they had like a camp when they were traveling to Utah. They had a whole camp and everything. Let's see. On December 10th of 1864, Francis married Isabel. They ended up having 12 children together. Wow. He worked at Little's Lumber Mill and worked his way up in management. He eventually bought the company and continued to be successful, which gave him enough money to become an investor in many other properties and businesses. So like I was saying before, he kind of owned like that electrical company or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So 
that's how he got dibs on the first plumbing system. Oh, okay. At some point, I didn't get the exact year, but Isabella ended up traveling back to England, and while she was there, she drew up a picture of this house that she saw, and it was like this old, like, Victorian-looking house that you'll see a lot in England. She brought that drawing back home, and as a wedding gift, Francis took that to a local architect and had him draw up plans for this house that she, like, designed or, like, drew. <gasps> so literally gave her her dream house for a wedding gift. What a man. <laughs> right? Holy crap. Yeah. Joshua, take notes. <laughs> right? <laughs> Francis... You know, he got these plans, he ended up buying this huge piece of property, and the plan for him, or plan for the property was so that he could build his mansion, and then there's still going to be enough room for his children to also build their own houses onto the property, so that they could have, like, this little... Their own little compound. Compound, yeah, Yeah. basically. But, like, that just goes to show that Francis really was always a forward thinker, and always thinking about his family. Francis, so he was a leader in the LDS church, and Mm -hmm. at one point the church called on him to practice polygamy but he married a second wife named Sarah Carew and they ended up having six children together but only two of them made it to adulthood oh, yeah sad. Francis eventually became a prominent political figure he held positions on the school board and city council from 1886 to 1890 he served two terms as mayor of Salt Lake City and while he was mayor in 1889 Francis actually went to trial for aiding and embedding mishandling of public money court records say that he was supposed to distribute the funds a certain way but instead he pocketed $110 which in today's world that's about $3,323 yeah don't steal the judge ended up actually dismissing the whole case because he decided that Francis wasn't doing that out of criminal intent he was just like well it looked like it was a complete accident like he didn't oh. really mean to so sometimes people just aren't gonna math exactly. they do it all the time <laughs> right he just round up a little you know yeah. <laughs> so Francis died in 1899 and at the time of his death Death, he was the second most wealthiest man in the Utah Territory. Wow. Guess who was the first? Um, Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Francis was also the president of the Utah Commercial Savings Bank and the Western Valley Loan and Trust Company and the Utah Power and Light Company. He was the vice president of Taylor, Romney, and Armstrong Company and the director of many other firms. So, he was on the top of the tops. So, because he was, you know, this, like, leader and he probably had so many connections and all these networking abilities a lot of times the armstrongs would hold large gatherings at the mansion oh cool yeah and they were also known to be just very welcoming people so there was always something going on at the mansion like people were like oh there's you know there's an event after isabel passed away in 1930 at the age of 81 the mansion was no longer a social hub and fell into disrepair the building was supposed to be demolished in 1980 but investors were interested in the property because of its location and history and it was completely restored in 1990 gotcha (laughs) so the building didn't end up getting demolished but instead was turned into a doctor's office and then later it became a bed and breakfast. When it was a bed and breakfast, they had 12 different rooms and each one was themed uh. for each month of the year. Oh, so, that's fun. Yeah. So the most popular room that was requested was Christmas. the February room, actually. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. The Valentine's room. Get how cool this room is, though. Okay. Like, I want to take a tour so bad. So bad. 
Is it still like that? Um, I don't, I don't know how it is right now oh. because it's a halfway house now. So they're using it for like rehabilitating homeless people, people with drug addiction problems, yeah. and even people that have been in prison. Yeah. So right now, I think that the rooms are just being used as like housing for them. Oh, I see. So I don't know if even the layout is the same. I don't know if I don't know. But this room was the shit <laughs> because back then it, it used to be the Armstrong's master suite. So it was a huge, huge room, but in the room it had a spiral staircase that went up to like one of the buildings do you know what a turret is no it's like the little like castle looking part oh, of the yeah, building yeah. with okay. like it's like a circle with a little cone top uh-huh. well there's one i don't know if you saw it but it's out front like on the corner like you see the turret that's where the february room is and there's a staircase that goes up that and at the very top guess what what there's a jacuzzi no way that's i know awesome right a jacuzzi they had those back then not back then but when oh. it was a bed and breakfast oh so it used to yeah. be Okay, Arm- sorry. Armstrong's master suite. The once it was a February room, then they made a spiral staircase. Okay, I see. With the jacuzzi. Yeah, I probably made that really confusing. No, it's my brain that doesn't know. How <laughs> um, in the whole building, there's four floors with all these twelve rooms. So I don't know if it's like three rooms per floor. Oh, I'm not sure. Like I said, like there's no way to go take a tour anymore. Um, yeah. I think that it's been with this program since 2013. Oh, okay. So, but the whole building, the whole mansion, has a very dark, authentic. Victorian decor. So if you go back and look at old reviews like on Yelp and Travel Advisor, things like that, everybody has something to say about the decor. They're like, it was legit. Like it's oh it's like you go into this bed and breakfast and you feel like you're in a whole different century. And then That's like cool. you go back outside and you're like, oh yeah, there's cars. <laughs> there was a room called the Mayor's Parlor and it was a room where guests could go and read quietly or get free access to Wi-Fi. And that used to be Francis's study. That's cool. Isabel's dining room is where breakfast was served. And that's really all I know about the building itself and the people who used to live there. Yeah. So let's get to the paranormal. So guests at the bed and breakfast, they reported seeing light fixtures shake and sway and the lights would flicker. Hmm. Guests have also reported seeing apparitions in the mirrors. Some guests have been locked in their rooms and the doors to dressers, closets, and and their armoire would randomly open and then slam shut in the middle of the night. Hmm. A caretaker of the mansion claimed that mysteriously the toilet paper in the bathrooms would unroll themselves. The door to the elevator has been known to rattle on its own, and guests have seen an apparition of a woman in a long black dress walking down the hallways going from room to room. And I did find... So one time, a husband and wife were staying at the mansion when it was a bed and breakfast, and they had in their room a large window that was built into the gable of the building. Do you know what a gable is? Mm. So you know how like a roof has like the peak? peak yeah Yeah. and you know like the triangle that it makes on the side of the house that's the gable oh it's like that little flat triangle piece so in their room they had a large window that was in that gable right Mm -hmm. so the couple went outside and you know just looking around and they're like oh let's go find our window you know to see like where we are on the mansion so they went and they found the window and they looked up and they saw a woman with her face like pressed against the window looking down at them and they described her as being in a black dress they go inside into the lobby go to the front desk and they're like who's in our room because we just left our room there shouldn't be anybody in there right and the front desk lady was like no i'm the only one on staff right now and i'm the only key holder other than you guys what? like i don't know that so, is spooky but then the couple goes back to their room to go investigate and they realize the only way that they would have seen someone looking down at them is if someone was floating above the bathtub 
<gasps> Creepy. Did they sleep there? <laughs> I guess. Well, yeah, actually, I found. Where did I see it? I didn't put it in my notes because I couldn't refind it, and I forgot to, you know, copy and paste that sighting. But I did. I did read somewhere that the husband commented and said, "Oh yeah, we were that couple, and we went and stayed there years later, and you know, same thing. We just don't know how that happens." That's crazy. Yeah. That couple, though, they later identified the woman in a photo as Florence Armstrong. Florence. Florence Armstrong. And let me tell you one other ghostly thing about Florence. A former maid of the mansion believes that Florence's spirit haunts the mansion, too. I read that she would be taunted by the spirit because it would sometimes walk through her as she was cleaning. And every so often Jeez. she would yell, she'd be like, I hate it when she does that! <laughs> and I guess, like, the other staff member, like, when that was happening, would see something, like, swooshing around the room. That was their what word, swooshing. Heck? What? So she was maintaining the house. Like, she was a cleaner or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it would happen to her that frequently? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. To where she was like why <laughs> stop i hate that that's crazy so i tried to do a deep dive on, on florence to see like okay why would she be the spirit that is seen you know yeah. like maybe like she was like the main person at the mansion or maybe she like died there or something yeah something what i could find is that um so florence was the second youngest child so she was child number 11 okay she was 18 years old when her father died so francis when he died mm -hmm. she was 18 she died in 19 1933 in her house two miles away from here so she didn't die in the house she died at her own house so how are people seeing her there? right and i also looked at my okay maybe she like lived there her whole life and then died somewhere else but even still like i looked up census reports she lived in a totally different place in her 20s that is so strange yeah but i don't know the rules of being a ghost right like what's <laughs> like, the criteria maybe it's the emotional attachment or something maybe to the and, place yeah, and maybe, like, the reason why she's, like, taunting the maid is because she's, like, not doing her job right. Yeah. yeah. Or she appreciates the job and wants to, like, show her somehow. I don't know. Weird. I believe since 2013, the mansion has been used as a halfway house called the Other Side Academy. They're a non-profit organization that helps people who have substance abuse problems, people who have, been exper who have experienced homelessness, and even criminals to get them back on their feet. In 2020, 35 students were able to graduate from the program and are now living in independent lives. If you'd like to donate to this organization, you can do that by going to their website at theothersideacademy.com forward slash how to help. There you can also find information on other ways you can help by donating clothes or supplies and also volunteering. Also, if you're planning on moving and want to hire movers, they offer that service for their students in the program to gain experience and to become more self-reliant. That's my story. That's awesome. That's yeah. a pretty cool building. It is really cool. I wish we could have got a tour. Yeah. Maybe what I should do is, like, find places that we're going to in the future and, like, email the owners now and be like, hey, in the future, we want to come here. Can we get a tour? And then see if I can work something out. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to episode nine. Mm -hmm. Check back next week. You can find us on Instagram at Hunt and Cold Podcast. You can also write in uh, your own bring your own booze story to stories at hauntandcold.com. And just let us know if you want us to interview you like over Zoom or if you'd rather just write in your stories and have us read your story for everybody. Just let us know what you would prefer and then we can work something out. Anything else? Oh, you can find us on Patreon. Just search us, Haunt and Cold. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the support. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we will catch you guys all next time. We hope you all had a Merry Christmas. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, bye. bye.